0: Today on the To Win the Mini podcast, we are looking forward, preparing for Christmas. We are talking about uh, the gospel stories, also Jesus uh, there as we find him in the gospel stories, dealing a little bit uh, with uh, what we find in the the biblical text, the birth narratives, also the historical setting. And to do that, we brought in our expert, Dr. Charlie Ray the Third, Dr. Charlie Ray the Third. Hey, thanks for being here, brother. Yeah, glad to be here. Appreciate you having me. Dr. Ray, for those who uh, who don't know who Dr. Ray is, he's assistant professor of New Testament and Greek. He's also the divisional associate dean for our Biblical Studies Division, and he directs the accelerated BA plus MDiv uh, program degree here at New Orleans Seminary. Uh, and uh, for our purposes, teaching New Testament, and he is he's the guy to talk to us about Jesus. And uh, looking forward to this, as those who are preparing their Christmas messages uh, and looking at, for example, Matthew, Luke, and we're going to get to those distinctions in the birth narratives. Let's back up for a minute, uh, Charlie. Talk to us about the context into which Jesus comes. What's going on in the world? Uh, you know, Scripture tells us in the fullness of time. So what does that time look like when Jesus was born? I actually had Galatians 4.4 pulled up here. All so right. Paul says in Galatians four four, but when the
1: fullness of time came... God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those under the law, in order that we might receive the adoption, right? So uh, Paul is very specific that there was something uh, significant about the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, One thing that I think is helpful for us to think about is the story of Scripture as a whole. So obviously the Old Testament begins to come to a close as we deal with the destruction of the temple. So Solomon's temple, uh, which was built right after the time of David, eventually the people are sent away into exile. The Babylonians come in, they, they destroy the temple, they, they take away God's people into exile, the remnant of them at least. And then of course, as, as we move on through the prophets, uh, we have the rebuilding of the temple. So Zerubbabel comes back and begins to rebuild the temple. But the Old Testament really leaves us, of course, with some type of expectation of something else happening, right? So the the temple of Zerubbabel is nothing like the temple of Solomon. There's even language in the Old Testament that some of the people who saw Solomon's temple, when they saw Zerubbabel's temple, they wept, Mm -hmm. right? But not because they were happy necessarily, but because they realized this wasn't uh, what the temple used to be. So as we get into the story of Jesus, one of the things I think is really important for us to understand is that Jesus is fulfilling all of these things that the Old Testament points forward to. But there's also a lot of things that happen in between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, We sometimes call this the intertestamental period. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Second Temple Period, right, referring to Zerubbabel's temple as the Second Temple. Uh, And there's more history there than we have time to get into right now. Uh, but essentially the people are back in the land, uh, they've come back from exile. Uh, there's a period of really, really a long time of peace until about the, the, the 160s uh, where things begin to go into turmoil. And essentially uh, there's a, we won't get too much lost in the weeds on this, but there is a, a foreign ruler named Antiochus who comes in and captures the temple and desecrates the temple. And one of the things that the people are really dealing with in this intertestamental period, at least as we come near to the time of Jesus is, how do I live faithfully before God in the midst of this pagan world? And you actually have this sort of renaissance uh, under these people called the Maccabees after Antiochus IV where they actually recapture the temple uh, and they begin to try to live according to God's law. And you see these tensions all the way up to the time of Jesus' birth over what does it look like for me to be a faithful Jew? Some of them are, are compromising by aligning themselves with um, Antiochus and the Seleucids and eventually the Romans. Others of them are trying to uh, keep God's law and, and faithfully live out God's commands. This is probably ironically where the Pharisees come from, which it sounds odd to us because we know the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? But probably the origins of the Pharisees were we want to be really careful to keep God's law in the midst of a pagan culture. Now, we know they went astray with all these traditions and things like that. But in this time, uh, you have um, the area in and around Jerusalem being controlled by the Romans. You have this longing for uh, maybe even a better return from exile, essentially this idea that we're back in the land, but things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so I think as we begin reading the Gospels, that's one of the things that they're teaching us is. In the midst of all of this longing that the Old Testament points forward to, the things that they had thought, well, maybe this is the time, right? Maybe maybe Judas Maccabeus, who leads this revolt against Antiochus, maybe he's the one who's really going to set things right. And into that comes Jesus, and, and the Gospels are teaching us that Jesus is the one who's come. And he's the one that's going to make everything right, but it doesn't look like what they thought it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. He's not a a warrior like Judas was necessarily, right? He's not starting um, some sort of guerrilla warfare against the Romans like the Zealots might have wanted him to. But the Gospel writers want us to realize, no, this is really the one uh, who's coming to make all things right, who's coming to uh, redeem all of this really in some ways mess of history uh and 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 start this new incredible work of God
0: yeah well done by the way that's roughly 400
1: years of history and you <laughs> when I teach I, on that I usually tell them students we've only got 700 years to cover in like an hour and 20 minutes so you gave me even less time than that so
0: but it, it was well done one of the things when I when I'm preaching around Christmas time uh, and I find myself doing this I, I've in my church, every Christmas season, I would find myself doing this, and now traveling, preaching, and, and preaching at different churches, I find myself doing this. Uh, when you when you recognize what's going on in that intertestamental period, the close of Malachi, moving into Matthew, there was such a longing, mm-hmm. and the longing is felt from every different direction—historical, political, religious. I mean, you name it; they were just they were they were aching for something, for a deliverer. And this longing that we, that we recognize in the historical period and by understanding this, this particular period, it just uh, – I think that our folks can feel it too. This longing for Jesus, this desire for the Deliverer, even in our own lives, when we can paint a picture – and we don't need to spend a whole lot of time in the pulpit painting that picture either – but connecting them with the people of the New Testament where they were so weary and they were longing for the Messiah – and here he is. Well, the history I think shows you,
1: again, we, we don't have time to get into all of the history, right? But the history shows you there's not the right kind of high priest. Uh, even by the time you time to get to Jesus's birth, Herod is a king, but he's not the right kind of king, right? He's not the, 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 the king from David's line, right? And so, yeah, I think that's a great point to be made is they have a priest, they have a king, but something's not right. Hmm. And into that situation steps Jesus and the New Testament begins to teach us he is the king, right? He is the prophet. He is the priest. All of those different sorts of things to show us how in this midst of a time of longing, Jesus comes along and fulfills all of those things, as Paul would say, all of of God's promises are yes in Christ, right? So he fulfills all of those things uh, perfectly, uh, whereas they had all of these imposter kings and imposter priests, things like that.
0: Yeah. All right, so now we're in the in the gospel stories themselves. So we have Matthew, particularly Matthew and Luke are the ones that we spend more time in, uh, in this time of year. And they're very different in how they present the birth of Jesus. Uh, so what are the different birth narratives in Matthew specifically in Luke? What, how do these birth narratives help us to better understand Jesus identity, his mission, who he is, what he's come to do?
1: Yeah.
0: So the birth narratives, of course, you've already alluded to this fact that most of the,
1: so-called Christmas story, right, comes from either Matthew or Luke. Uh, Of course, Mark starts with uh, John the Baptist, essentially. And, of course, John goes back to uh, in the beginning, but most of the Christmas story comes from, from Matthew and Luke. And it is interesting some of their differences. So just for example, they both have genealogies. But Matthew actually starts with his genealogy. Matter of fact, that's the part you probably want to skip over. It's after. to draw interest, right? He yeah. says, hey, I know how to it's draw attention. It's a attention. great way to draw interest. Here's 20 <laughs> verses of names or whatever it is, right? But if you look at the way Matthew's genealogy starts, he starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he, so he's making a very clear sort of timeline from jesus back to david back to abraham and then he comes in and fills that in with a bunch of names right he gives the names from abraham all the way to david and then there's like a pause uh Obed the father of jesse and jesse the father of david the king right that, that the king is a little bit of an addition there right to say okay this is a break in the timeline then we go on from david all the way down to the the jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to babylon Another break there. And then we go from the deportation of Babylon to Jesus, essentially. And he concludes by saying, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to Babylon were 14 generations, and from Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So, So Matthew's giving us all these names, but he's sort of bracketing it with these incredible timelines in the history of God's people. So that in Matthew, we see that Jesus is the new Abraham, right? He is the new, the, the, the descendant of David, right? He's very much emphasizing that Jesus is the son of Abraham, uh, the son of David. He doesn't necessarily use Paul's language, right? The seed of, of Abraham language that Paul would. But I think he's making some of the same point by how he tells the story. So Matthew, of course, is a, is a very Jewish gospel. In his birth narrative, he's going to very much emphasize how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So he's got all of these fulfillment formula quotes, right? So you have the story of the birth of Jesus and um, Jesus uh, being born to the Virgin Mary. He doesn't necessarily use that language, but then he comes along and he says, Behold, the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Right? That's a quote from Isaiah seven fourteen, And he says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So all of Matthew's stories have these fulfillment formula quotations that go along with them. Uh, there's the Hosea 11.1, one, out of Egypt I have called my child. There's the uh, he shall be called a Nazarene, which that's a, that's a tough one, so we won't get into that today because I don't have all the answers there. But nevertheless, uh, Matthew is very clearly showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the longing of the Old Testament. Um, and it's not that Luke doesn't do that. But Luke structures his a little bit differently. Luke doesn't actually start with the genealogy. Luke actually begins with uh, this story of uh, Zachariah uh, and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist, and then he goes into uh, the part that we're most familiar with from the, the Christmas story um, with Luke at least is um, the, the shepherds, right, and, and all that, that we see in, in Luke chapter 2. And then in Luke chapter 3. Uh, He finally comes to the genealogy actually after he's told the story of um, Jesus' time at 12 years old in the temple and all those sorts of things. And Luke's genealogy is a little bit different. He actually doesn't start with way back Abraham, right? He actually starts with Jesus, and then he makes his way all the way back to son of Adam, son of God. So there's a lot of the same names in those lists, and the connections between the two lists is probably more than we have time to get into now. But Luke is very specifically showing us that Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah, but he's the Savior of the whole world. So you see, even in the language in in, in Luke, you have the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah, where after they have these incredible visions of angels and things like that, right, they, they sort of sing these songs or we have these poems that, that reflect their, uh, their theology, right, and it's talking about this idea of being a light to the Gentiles and things like that. So I'm not by any stretch of the argument arguing that they're contradicting each other, but I think in Matthew you see, you see this very particular Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, the descendant of David, a descendant of Abraham. Of course he's that in Luke 2. Uh, as well, but Luke is very much emphasizing that no, this is also the savior of the entire world, right? He's the one to, to come fulfill not just the promises of the Old Testament, the promises to Abraham that through Abraham all nations would be blessed, right? That there would be a light to the Gentiles to come through Abraham, and that, that through this descendant of Abraham, now even the Gentiles will be blessed as well.
0: Mm. What do you do uh, in, the, uh, in the genealogy of Matthew? they're the women that Mm -hmm. are named. Uh, And I actually, one of the first times I I preached a Christmas sermon at my, my church, I preached the genealogy and I emphasized those particular women and what they're communicating about this Messiah and what he's coming to do in Jesus. Uh, so for, for our guys out there, they're looking to, uh, to preach these birth narratives and and they want to run as fast as they can away from the genealogy within Matthew. How do the, how do the women that are there, because the Matthew and the Luke and, uh, genealogies are very different. And Matthew has even commentary within his geology, genealogy about, um, the women. And I love, for example, her name's not Bathsheba, she's Uriah's wife mm-hmm. in Matthew 1. It seems like Matthew's drawing our attention to specific women. What do we what do we take from that? So let me talk sort of philosophically about mm-hmm. that first. And this is
1: particular to Matthew's gospel, but I think it applies to actually a lot of the writings of the New Testament. If you look at Matthew's gospel, my argument would be that he expects you to know the Old Testament. I use an example from from Jude because it's just an easy example, but in Jude uh, six or seven, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he, he talks about the sons of Korah, for example. He doesn't explain what happened, right? He, he doesn't say what the sons of Korah were all about, but he uses them as an example uh, in relation to these false teachers that he's dealing with. The, the overarching point is that God knows how to judge his enemies while preserving his people. But Jude, if you don't know who the sons of Korah are, you don't get the point, right? Or, or at least you don't understand why he would bring them up. Jude is expecting you to know who the sons of Korah were and think, oh, that is a really good illustration of this point I'm making, right? I think we see something very similar in Matthew where even with the genealogies, if you want to be able to preach the genealogies, you need to be able to read the Old Testament. And I don't like to tell my Old Testament colleagues here this, right? But the Old (laughs) Testament is really important. And I usually tell students, if you want to understand the New Testament better, the, the best thing you can do is read the Old Testament. Yeah. Because Matthew, by the way that he tells this story, uh, really, he, not, not only does he expect you to know who Abraham are and David are, right, because he leads with that, but he's expecting you to know who these women are as well. And I think he's expecting you to fill in that story. So again, not, not to go to all the examples, right, but when you go to um, Uriah's wife, for example, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think he's expecting his readers to say, oh, I remember that story and I know what happened there. And I know the significance of that story. And of course, there's there's two main arguments about what Matthew's doing there. Is it um, some of the immoral circumstances surrounding these women, or is it the fact that they're Gentile women? And there's no real consensus on that. and and maybe both are true in some sense yeah. of that term, right? Um but I, again, I think if you if you want to preach the genealogy, I mean, this is scripture, right? So this is useful for uh, encouraging, exhorting, teaching, and training the church, right? And so so we should be preaching things like this. Um, obviously preaching it, what we have to do in preaching it is ask, the, one of the questions that's been most affecting my preaching recently is asking the question, what is the biblical author doing here, right? What, what is he doing? Mm. Why, why does he include this? Yeah. And so clearly Matthew includes the genealogy for a purpose. Um, and so I'm asking the question, what's the purpose of the genealogy? And the purpose of the genealogy is, is, is probably more than we can talk about. It's probably multiple purposes. But in part at least to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, uh, to show that, um, that this, I think possibly at least these incredible, seemingly immoral circumstances surrounding Mary are, are not um, what you might think they are, but God has worked through these incredible circumstances you know, all, throughout, all throughout the history of his people. And it's to, it's to point people to behold the faithfulness of God to keep His promises. So then if I'm preaching the genealogies, then what I want to be doing is causing my people to behold the faithfulness of God mm-hmm. so that they're stirred up to trust God and His faithfulness through Jesus. And so, um, yeah, I think a lot of people could look at preaching the genealogies and think, well, that's going to be a really boring sermon. And in fairness, you could probably preach a pretty boring sermon on the genealogies, if I had to guess. I,
0: I've heard Borg's
1: sermons on a lot of things. <laughs>
0: that's fair. Probably <laughs> preached a number on a lot
1: yeah, of things. <laughs> yeah, let's don't get into that. Um, but Matthew is doing something here. Mm-hmm. He's teaching us something about who Jesus here, here is. And I think particularly he's teaching us something about the faithfulness of God which means that the genealogy can be used to stir up faith in our people Mm -hmm. because it shows us that God is faithful. If you like what you hear, you'll love Defend the Faith, our annual apologetics conference here on the NOBTS campus each January, where you'll meet and learn from many of today's top apologists. To learn more about Defend the Faith, as well as our academic degrees in apologetics, Visit us at nobts.edu forward slash apologetics.
0: Yeah, God's revealing himself. He's revealing himself in particular ways, and so we pay attention to those ways. Uh, Man, so many questions, so many curiosities here. (laughs) How do you—so as we come to the biblical text, we only know so much about Joseph and Mary. Mm -hmm. So I'm not asking you to tell us what all we should know or can know. How how do you handle the, the person Joseph, the person Mary, as you're talking about not only the Christmas story, but just in the life of Jesus, how do you uh, help us navigate with what little knowledge we have about these two people? What, how, how should we approach them as we're telling the story of God? And they're pretty pivotal in that. Uh, but how should we approach them in preaching, teaching, or just discussions? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me think about how not to give a
1: 30-minute answer there. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, let me try to say a couple of things here and okay. you, can, you can push back on whatever you'd like. So one thing that I would say there is to focus on what the text tells us and what the, not what the text doesn't tell us. I think we have a certain danger in these stories of kind of just our immediate response is to put ourselves into that situation. So you see a lot of this in relation to Mary, you know, we say, well, she was probably about 13. Well, of course, the text doesn't tell us that. Um, we get that from sort of historical study of the time. But but even if that's true, being 13 today and 13 back then is probably not the same thing anyway. So I'm not really sure that that's that helpful, right? But because. Mm-hmm. We look at it and say, well, this would be very unusual that such a young woman to get married. Well, it wasn't unusual back then. That's the whole point of arguing that she was young is that was the common practice, right? And so the text doesn't actually emphasize that. So I think we can run into a danger of immediately trying to place ourselves in in that circumstance and how would I have felt and, and those kinds of things. And the problem is sometimes how we would have felt isn't how they would have felt. And sometimes that's not what the text is emphasizing anyway. The second thing that I would say there is the story's not about them. So the birth narrative is, a, is not about Mary and Joseph. And so I do think we have to be careful that the hero of the birth story is, of course, Jesus and, and God. Um, and it's not Mary and Joseph. However, we do want to emphasize what the text emphasizes. So, for example, the text teaches us that Joseph was a righteous man. Um, and, and so it's proper for us to look at Joseph and see how he's trying to keep God's commands and live faithfully before God, and even to uphold Joseph as an example of what it looks like to be a righteous man. Or even Mary, of course, in, a, in some context, there's a lot of difficulties with how we talk about Mary, because certainly some Christians have, have put Mary in a place where she doesn't belong, right? However, that doesn't mean we can't focus on Mary at all, right? We see her faithfulness before God. One of the things I've always been challenged about in Luke is Zachariah seems not to believe the, the promise of the angel about the birth of his son, so he can't talk for, you know, mm-hmm. until the birth of the child. Mary, on the other hand, has some questions about how is this gonna happen, but nothing bad happens to Mary. So it seems that the implication of the story is Mary has greater faith than Zachariah in this case, right? She's not questioning the Word of God, but she's just saying, I don't understand how this is going to happen, but we see faith in Mary. You have this beautiful song from Mary, you know, um, in in Luke chapter 1, that that is her reflection on the birth of Jesus and the, the promise of the angel and all these different sorts of things. So. I don't know, that's a lot from a short question, but those are just some of the thoughts where I think on the one hand, um, we can read too much into the story or we can ignore them um, or, or make them the hero of the story, but we can actually learn great lessons of faith because God chose these people who who, who seem to have trusted in him, right, to be the one through whom Jesus would be born.
0: Yeah. No, I, I agree 100%. O- oftentimes, so we were just in one of my doctoral seminars, we were looking at preachers in history. Mm-hmm. And as I was, as we were discussing, one of our big problems is we place our own cultural lens on guys from 100 and 200 years ago, and we're not treating them fairly if we do that. Yeah. Uh, we're not representing them accurately. And we have to be careful when we go into Scripture that – It's not, I mean, my daughter right now is 12. I'm not looking at the story of Mary as though she's the exact same as my daughter. I shouldn't (laughs) as as the exact same as my daughter. It's a very different world and we have different contexts. And so we need to be faithful to the biblical narrative and not upload our own ideals and ideas and understanding of culture, culture into that uh and I had to say it in my church where the where the text is silent, so am i yeah uh i wanna understand it in history i wanna you know it was very common when a, a young lady's body was now prepared to have children, well, they often got married yeah uh and so I think that's historically accurate uh and to say that mary was, as a thirteen year old was was very different then than than we are now is accurate and but also it's a, I'm amazed at how God reveals himself and it's utterly different than how oftentimes we think he should. Yeah. But as he's revealing himself, we have these characters and, and oftentimes we're not real sure what to, what to do with them because I I don't know. I feel like we want to clean them up a little bit more and we want to make them uh, more spiritual and we want to deify them because they're helping us understand the story of God. We do that. Obviously we have a whole church that's done that with Mary um, with Joseph, we're trying to fill in gaps and, and fill in the blanks that we just don't know. Uh, and, and these other characters that weave their way into the biblical narrative, uh, uh, particularly the birth narratives, how do, for example, let's pivot here. How do the wise men help us understand Jesus? How do the shepherds uh, and the angels singing, the other characters that are crucial to us understanding how God is revealing himself in these birth narratives? How do they further us understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to do?
1: Yeah, so one of the things as I teach on interpreting the Bible that I try to emphasize is the study of the historical culture of the text can be tremendously helpful, and I would encourage people to do that. We just can't let that historical cultural background rise above the text, right? So even as you think about shepherds, you'll hear a lot of conversations about that at Christmas. There's a certain irony that David was a shepherd that probably by the time of Jesus' day, uh, shepherds weren't probably looked on very favorably, right? They were uh, not the kinds of people you would be expecting um, Jesus to appear to or or the angels to appear to at the birth of Jesus. Uh, Certainly the wise men sort of defy our expectations as well, right? You have uh, the wise men coming to Herod and the religious officials in in Jerusalem, right? And these wise men from, from this far off place know that the Messiah is coming, that the, the king is being born, and Herod the king and all of his, his royal officials have no idea. So I do think that as we read the Christmas story, and this is true really all throughout the gospels, our expectations are confounded in many ways, right? So the kinds of things that we would expect God to do isn't exactly what he does. Uh, he doesn't appear in the way we would expect him to appear, from birth in a stable all the way through shepherds coming to him and these wise men from a far-off land coming to him. That's not the the picture of a coming king that you would probably expect um, if you were there at that time. I, mean, I think there's a couple of different lessons for us. I mean, one, there is just the simple lesson that, that God does what he wants to do, right? And I, I think that is an important lesson to learn. But it is teaching us, I think, So so if you look at at Mary and Joseph in particular, I think I would say it this way. God works through people who might be unexpected people for God to work through, but they are people who trust Him, and they have faith in Him, right? And they listen and obey when God speaks, right, When, when the voice of God speaks. And so I think some of that, that's it's trying to reflect on all the different characters, right? I think that some of what we see is this confounding of expectations, that, uh, that God is doing this thing that's incredible that we really wouldn't have expected, but, and working with people we wouldn't have expected. But at the same time, he's working among people of faith. So I think there's a lesson for us there, right? Even as we think about if God were to bring a revival in our church or city or whatever the case may be, I think there's some lessons to that, right? And we can miss the mark here on a couple of different ways, right? We can think, well, God would only work among people like me because, you know, have you met me, right? I'm obviously the kind of person he would work among. And we might be surprised um, that the, the kinds of people God would work among. But at the same time, these are people of faith. And I think some people go too far the other way and say, well, God's only going to work among the poorest or the, uh, the, the most immoral or something like that, Right? well, he may, but only in so much as those people trust him, right, and follow him in faith. And so I think both of those points are
0: important. Mm. So you've you've pastored. You're not just a guy who reads this stuff and talks in class. Uh, so as you're pastoring your church, preaching Christmas sermons, how do you go about it? What are some of your favorite? I, that One of the things I found was, man, Christmas every year, the, those are the tough ones because you're telling the same story and you're trying to engage the people in different ways. How did how did you go about it? How do yeah. you do it? What are some of the your favorite this things that you did? This is
1: such a bad question for you to ask me because <laughs> I, I always somewhat jokingly say Christmas is my least favorite time to preach because you've got five Sundays a year. Yeah. If you're doing like an yeah. Advent, for example, you got five Sundays a year on four chapters of the Bible, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you've got the rest of. Uh, 47 weeks the math is hard right that's not my you know <laughs> you got 47 weeks the rest of the year for the other you know 66 plus books of the bible so i, I mean i think uh, I, i've done a lot of things over the years um i've done um because when you're you know i preached in this probably 11 christmases in a row in the same place right so eventually you're like well i got what am i going to do this year yeah. So, I mean, I probably varied some over the years. Uh, I mean, I preached through both birth narratives probably one year, the second year. A lot of times I'd go back to Old Testament passages. So, for example, one year I did all of Matthew's quotes. He's got five quotations from the Old Testament in his birth narrative. So, instead of preaching Matthew's birth narrative, I went back and preached those Old Testament texts. Obviously, with some reflection on how this is fulfilled in Christ. Um, and honestly, other years I've, I've, Done fewer Christmas sermons, right? I just continue my series uh, that I'm in um, up until maybe the Sunday before Christmas or something. How did that that. go? Um, Do people say you hate Christmas? (laughs) So, my favorite piece of Christmas decoration in my home is the Grinch mug that I drink out of for the entire Christmas season. So, again, it's a bad person to ask that question to. so we did, we, we had like an Advent theme during that time. We're singing Christmas carols and things like that. So it actually wasn't probably as negatively received as you might have thought. Um, and of course, I could make some ties into into Christmas, you know, almost wherever you are. I mean, you can can make some implications from the text there. So, um, yeah, it, it probably went maybe a little better than you would have
0: expected. So. <laughs> no, I'm just imagining, you know, it, uh, even if you don't sing every uh, hymn or song if it's not a Christmas song. It's yeah. like, oh, why aren't we singing all Christmas hymns? Yeah. Well, there there are other songs that can t- <laughs> t- talk about Jesus yeah. that you don't hear in a department store. Mm-hmm. Right? Although I'm a big fan of Christmas and Christmas hymns and, and all of that. Um, so, man, I, I appreciate it. Uh, our pastors who are out there, they're, some of them have been there 11 years. Some of them, it's their first year. So hearing what they need to do with at, at Christmas time, it, it's a chore. Uh, it really is a challenge. I did a lot of different things, preaching the Old Testament uh, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, preaching the the uh, gospel birth narratives themselves, looking at it from the character's perspective and, yep. and all of that. Uh, and I found that, man, it's difficult coming into the new year, into, into a, a new Christmas season.
1: Yeah, i would probably done most of those things, too. Mm-hmm. I'm probably, and even, even where I serve as a lay pastor now... I mean, we're going to continue our series through Colossians all the way up through Christmas Eve as a Sunday this year. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll just keep preaching through Colossians. I mean, we have an Advent reading and some things like that. And the musical will change some, obviously. But, um, yeah, I'll, I will preach straight through Colossians until uh, Christmas Eve service and then then have a different message on that day. So,
0: mm-hmm. Do you like the Nativity story, the movie? Have you seen that one? I'm not sure I have. Okay. I was just wondering. I'm not asked to— Biblical Studies guy, if they like that. It's, it's a pretty good movie, actually. It's I mean, yeah. it's entertaining and it seems to be uh, connected. It's not wild and crazy like some of them can be. You've-
1: yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a bad person to ask about movies. I read the Bible instead of watching oh, movies. Oh, wow, no, wow, wow. I'm kidding, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll end on that though <laughs> uh, That's a terrible note to end on. That's a joke, just to end yeah, it No, I, I think our folks understand. <laughs> uh, I, hey, we appreciate it. We appreciate you helping us uh, with these texts and, and uh, helping us think. Think more deeply about it, more critically. It's helpful to get out of our own heads, uh, and and honestly, the the race to, and the uh, the pressure of Christmas time, you've helped us kind of you know get back to the text, preach it faithfully, accurately, not get caught up in, in all of the the possible uh, directions that we could go that can be a bit dangerous. Well, I, I know we're wrapping faith. up, but actually it was that pressure
1: that really got to me. And I, and I think I would just say to that, you, you feel this pressure to preach this great series over Christmas. And, and people aren't sanctified by the impressiveness of our sermons. they're They're sanctified by us proclaiming God's word to them. And, and, you know, leading them to behold the glories of Christ through the preaching of his word. So I think sometimes we just need to pre- take that pressure off of ourselves and say, I'm not I'm not doing this so that people will think this is the greatest sermon series ever on Christmas. I'm, I'm doing it to to preach God's word and to preach Christ and
0: trust that he'll sanctify the people through that. So Yeah. Amen. On that note, uh, would you close us in prayer by praying for our guys that are going to be out there preaching these messages? Pray that for them. Pray that prayer over them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we'll close. Thank you for being here. Though. Absolutely.
1: Let's pray. Uh, God, I do thank you just for this opportunity. Even as we just um, sit here and think about the the birth story, uh, God, I just want to reflect on the fact that uh, that you sent Christ, uh, the very Son of God, to dwell um, on this earth, God, to come to, to live a perfect life, to suffer, to die, to be raised. So God, we just praise you for that. Uh, we thank you for that. Uh, we are so grateful um, that the Word of God might dwell among us, and that we would behold Your glory through Christ. So I pray for those who'll be listening to this, particularly who'll be preaching, uh, just just preaching this Christmas season. God, I gotta pray um, that You just use the preaching of Your Word, God. Whether that's preaching the birth narratives. Uh, preaching some of these Old Testament texts, continuing in a series, whatever it may be. Uh, God, I just pray uh, that even this Christmas season you would help them to make much of Christ. Uh, God, that they would help people to see um, your face, uh, your glory in the face of Christ. Uh, God, I pray that you would help them be eased from this pressure uh, to do something incredible. And that you would help them to just lean into the fact that through the simple preaching of your word, Uh, that you sanctify your church, you grow your church, and you save people, God. And I pray that you would do that through their ministries, uh, even this Christmas season. I pray this in
0: Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Sure. Thanks for listening to To Win the Many, a podcast of the Caskey Center at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. The Caskey Center for Church Excellence provides ministerial resources, including undergraduate and graduate scholarships for ministers serving Southern Baptist churches in Alabama, Indiana, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, and Wyoming. For access to additional resources or more information about our scholarship opportunities, visit our website at caskeycenter.com or nobts.edu.